Hello, beautiful people. My guest today is Elise LeMay. And Elise is someone who has been watching or listening to the podcast for, I believe, since it began. And that's pretty cool because it's really a full circle moment. And I've gotten to know Elise on Twitter from the way she puts out content and writes and has been so open with her feelings and emotions around burnout and creating content. I was like, I would love to have this woman on the podcast. And it turned into a great conversation. We started talking off about jumping out of planes and about backpacking in Southeast Asia. And we talked about the impact that COVID's happened and we followed her whole journey. And I think you guys will get a lot of value out of this. Thank you as always for listening. And if you have any feedback about the episode, let me know on Twitter at Hey Danny Miranda. That's all for me. Excited for you to check out this episode with Elise LeMay. Interesting people, thought-provoking conversations, nutrition for your brain. Journey through the minds of the world's top performers and discover what it really takes to achieve your highest version. This is the Danny Miranda Podcast. So I figured we'd start with you jumping out of a plane. That seems like a natural place to start. What was that experience like? You know, it was a very intense experience, to put it nicely. I am not a big thrill seeker person. I hate heights. I don't like roller coasters. If there's turbulence on an airplane, I freak out. But after a year in the pandemic where life feels has felt pretty much more or less the same, I really wanted an opportunity to challenge myself. And I visited my friend Suji down in Florida, who does this like five times a day, every day. Like she's a professional skydiver and a pilot. And I knew that visiting her in Florida would mean that I would be jumping out of a plane. So the morning of, I woke up and I was like, I can't go to Florida. I can't go. I have too much work. Like this weekend just wouldn't be a good weekend to go. That was a total bullshit excuse. Like I could do it, but I was terrified because I knew that if I committed, it would happen. So I went on flights, Google flights, and it told me that it would cost $800 to switch my tickets to the next weekend. So I was like, okay, like I'm just going to go. The whole weekend, fear just followed me the whole weekend. I skydove on Monday. The Sunday, the day before, we went to the drop zone because she was working there. So I was paying her a visit. And everyone at the drop zone was just jazzed. People were jumping all day long. They looked so excited. And then you just had me just like quivering in the back. They had me have all these documents, sign your life away, you know, and you see, they show you a video where they have people like jump out saying no. And I just remember like my heart is pounding just thinking about it. I remember sitting there and the dread was so intense it was almost overwhelming, but we left the drop zone. I calmed down again. The morning of at 5.30 a.m., I woke up and I was just like, why would I do something like this? I just kept replaying my fate over and over and over, like the doors opening open, the wind rushing in, jumping into the like into the vastness. And I just couldn't comprehend why I would do something like, like why anyone would do something like that. But we got to the drop zone that morning and I was super excited. All the fear kind of went away. And when did the fear go away? Sorry to cut you off. No, don't worry. Um, 
I think it went away once I saw who was going to be in the plane with me and my instructor. And they were all so relaxed. My instructor was like, this is the most important thing you need to know. And I was preparing for him to be like, you need to make sure you're tight. You need to make sure your legs are out, like some major life altering thing that if we don't do, we will die. And he goes, just have fun. That's the most important thing. And that's when I relaxed and was like, okay, it's going to be all right. So we got on the plane. We started climbing this tiny little plane. They opened the doors for air conditioning because it was so hot. So if you can just picture being in a tiny airplane or climbing in the sky, the doors just wide open the entire time. Like it's just absolute ridiculousness. Two wingsuiters jump out before everyone else because they want more space. And I just see them disappear into the vastness. And that's when, again, I got a wave of fear and I was like, I, I can't believe I'm doing this. <laughs> but the doors open again. They start jumping off. And before I knew it, I was just falling into the air. And it was a very amazing, beautiful experience. I told my uh, the guy who was behind me at Publito that I loved him because I was so <laughs> doped up in adrenaline. Um, 10 out of 10 would recommend, and I would love to do it again. So long answer, but it was such an incredible experience. And it really teaches you a lot about fear. So it was good. I just listened to Will Smith talk about his experience jumping out of a plane. And he said the same thing as you. He was so fearful, so fearful, so fearful the night of, the night before. And then the moment he jumps out of the plane, he just feels the sense of bliss. And he then on reflection says, oh, wow, if only, why was I spending that so much time fear in fear? And if I could just know that everything was going to be all right. I'd be happier and and more content and I would have saved myself those long nights. Did you also have a similar experience? Oh my God. Well, Danny, first of all, I listened to that video, I think at least 10 times. I'm not like just, there's types of people where they don't think and they do things. And there's other people that need tons of time to get immersed in what they're about to do before they do it. I'm the latter. And I watched Will Smith like 20 million times, every single skydiving video I could find, I'd find it and watch it. But I will tell you right now, no amount of video prepares you for an experience like that. Um, But yeah, like what he was saying, I mean, really, when you fall out of the plane, when you're in the maximum danger, there's zero fear whatsoever. And I mean, you just feel like you just smashed so many barriers mentally, physically. I mean, it's just a whole new way of experiencing things. And it definitely was very, very special. So scary. You come out of that experience. Now, what changes in your life? I mean, it's one of those things where you just land and you think to yourself, if I can do this, what else can I do? It opens up these possibilities and there's nothing more satisfying than tackling something that terrifies you and emerging on the other side. Okay. Um, It's honestly one of the best feelings in the world, even though the fear is a bitch to get through. (laughs) it really is such an incredible feeling once you push through to the other side. You know, it's so interesting. You mentioned before how you don't think of yourself as an adrenaline junkie because you traveled to Southeast Asia by yourself. And that seems like a pretty scary, intense thing for someone to do. What went into the decision to do that? And how was that experience? I mean, it was in one word, fantastic. But it's very interesting because when I was out there alone, um, there are, I did not meet many Americans at all around our age. Um, I also didn't meet any people who were 
like if I met Americans, they would be in packs, you know, like they were all traveling together on a group trip. But I was one of the only solo female travelers, um, American travelers, which was very interesting. But I mean, the way I reasoned it, I just always had this really deep desire to see what was out there and challenge myself and I don't know, just see what could be possible. So once I graduated from college, I had zero desire to go into a nine to five. Like all of my friends basically were hired full time. Um, They were, you know, salaried and I was just bartending. So I was never seeing them on the weekends. I was working three, four days a week, like pulling in more money that I've ever made in my entire life, but working like insane hours to afford this trip. Like every dollar went into savings and you feel like such an outcast. And when people ask you, what are you doing? And you go, Oh, I'm bartending. And I'm just going to buy a one-way ticket and leave. So many people looked at me like I was absolutely crazy. And since coming back, I still haven't met many people, if any, that have done the same thing. And it's a question I ask myself, why don't more people do it? But I don't know. Like, there's a lot of fear about traveling alone. So there's a whole stigma around it. So what did you come out of that experience learning? Oh, my gosh. I mean, it just like widens your appetite for adventure for people i mean the conversations you have when you're out there in a foreign country with new people new cultures it's there's no such thing as like hi what's your name what do you do where do you live what restaurants do you like like the typical questions you ask when you meet someone in like new york city or really any major metropolitan city it's very much like a cookie cutter script to figure out who you are why you're relevant and if i should care about you and there's also a lot of status involved wealth you know especially again in New York City it is very much a place that's built on prestige and authority and when you go backpacking or traveling that just flies out the window people do not give a shit about what you do or where you've been but they care more about the type of person you are on the inside and I would have so many conversations with new people who right off the bat after meeting with them, we would talk about like our philosophies on life and what we wanted out of this whole shebang and what we didn't want. And we would, you know, bond over the fact that there just had to be more to life than, than, than like the corporate career. Like my whole, like our whole existence is like, why is this the norm and can we escape it in some way? And that was what I walked out of it the most with as I came back to New York city, August, 2019 from that trip. And I was just like, I can't, I can't do this, like this corporate career. I don't know. It's scary when you think about it because like standing out and doing something different is is frightening. Yeah. And it seems like you've always had that mentality going back to the bartending and with your friends doing, pursuing different careers. Why do you think you were always attracted to the different, to the interesting, to the path that everyone else wasn't taking you know I wish I could give you like some crazy backstory that like when I was a kid I like did something wild but like I mean half of it is so my family is from France so I spent a lot of my summers in France visiting them and I would also my mom would send me off to like French summer camp with like other 13 year olds that I'd go completely alone so I got used to at a very early age meeting new kids in countries that I was familiar with I was familiar with friends but not like super familiar and just right off the bat very young age I just got comfortable with like going into a room and not knowing a single person and ever since I was 12 or 13 
it just worked out. And I was like, okay, I guess I can just keep going, you know, even as I get older. So I've always, I've always known I wanted to travel, travel alone, but I almost didn't do it. And this sounds kind of corny, but because I, I get very like, what's the word hesitant about like this woo woo stuff, but Jen Sincero's book, You Are a Badass. I feel I cringe saying it, but it is a good book. Reading that book again, I read it for the second time as I was bartending. And I remember I was reading it on the bus back to DC after visiting my parents in New York City. And I remember reading this line that was like, in order to have a life you you want, you have to do things that you've never done before. I'm butchering it, but something along those lines, like you just have to do things you've never done before if you want this life you've never had. And the second I got home from that bus, I just like opened up my computer, went on like Google flights. I was like, okay, like March 4th, uh, Norwegian Air, one way Thailand. Okay, great. I just booked it. And I was like, okay, I'll figure everything else later. Like that was the one moment where everything started, but I was so close to not making it happen. So it's scary to think about that, you know? What do you think almost held, held you back from not making it happen? I mean, this is like a a broad answer, but of course there's the fear and specifically fear of I'm going to go there. No one's going to be interested. Like I'm going to be alone. I'm going to be alone in a place that I don't know. You don't really know what the infrastructure is going to be like. And what I mean by that is when you land at the airport and you leave that airport, you have no idea what's waiting for you on the other side. I've been there and I know that once you leave the airport, it's, you know, like it's, it's, it's a city. Like there's, you know, there's hostels with other people who speak English. People are friendly. You know, English is honestly like the main language spoken anywhere around the world. There are a lot of familiarities. There's an entire tourism industry dedicated to people our age backpacking. But when you are sitting in your apartment, in your like cozy apartment, like in the city, what you've been in for years, you don't know any of that. And you think to yourself, I'm going to fly in and get murdered. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I don't know. You just have to realize that the world isn't as scary as you think it might be. Sounds corny, but that's what I came out of it. Yeah. How do you get over that fear? How would you advise someone to get over that fear? It's a good question. Like the fear of moving to a place that you've never been before, sort of. Or just booking a one-way ticket or having the courage to book a one-way ticket or the courage to go on an airplane that's 14,000 feet above ground and jump out of it? Honestly, the best advice I can give for those sorts of things is that it's okay to start small and build up from there. I There was many years where I was like, I will never go skydiving in my entire life. And ironically, when I was uh, traveling to the Philippines, I did a canyoneering trip. So I was jumping from like 5, 10, 15, 30 feet. And so I built up that level and I was like, that was the best day ever. I love jumping. It was so much fun. And I remember thinking that day, okay, you know what? Actually, I could skydive because I've had a taste of the adrenaline. And yeah, actually, I think I could do it. And again, for like buying a one-way ticket to Asia, which is very foreign in the eyes of an American who's probably, you know, might have never left the country before as a kid that was fortunate enough to spend summers in Europe. And then like, I was like, okay, I have been have been abroad before I have been in places where I didn't know anyone before how could Asia be that different so my best advice would be to like dip your toes in the water don't force yourself to make a huge life-altering decision if you don't want to get comfortable with 
the little things first, if that makes sense. Yeah, I like that. So you mentioned growing up in France, at least in the summers, and I'm curious how that's impacted your worldview. I mean, it's just such a fortunate thing to have because I also speak the language as well. So you're able to really get an entirely different worldview and you're able to understand like, I don't know, it just really widens your perspective in life. And you just see how, like when you just grow up in a place, it's so easy to stay in your hometown, the city, wherever you live and just feel like this is life. And this is life. And these are the parameters of it. And I don't know what happens out there, but in here, this is everything I have. But once you leave that place and you're plopped off into this place that you don't even recognize, you can understand the language and what people are saying. I mean, it's hard to, it's just like an expanse of consciousness, which again, sounds corny, but you really walk away thinking like, here, I'll tell you a story. And this sounds like it's going to be a cringe story, but I'm just going to go with it. But middle school, I was like, not a cute kid. I was very awkward, like very introverted. And in the eighth grade, so that's just as like puberty is rocking along. You're like, I want to look cute. I want to flirt, but like, I don't care about that. So eighth grade, my parents like shipped me off to summer camp with my sister. And we were known as the American girls. Never in my life had people like really pay, like kids our age paid attention to me like that. And for the first time, people were like trying to chat with me, like, boys were flirting with me. And I was like, what? What is this world I'm in? But when I flew back to America, even as like a 13 year old girl, I was like, okay, you know what? Like life is a lot bigger than this middle school crap. (laughs) But it just, yeah, it opens your eyes and little things like that where you're like, okay, you know what? Things might suck where I am right now, but there is a place that exists that I know where things aren't like that. It's the same thing for, you know, the corporate career dread we were just talking about in America, New York City can feel very concretized and unshakable. And then you go to places like Southeast Asia where people really center their lives around working seasonally and traveling full time. And you think, oh, there's different systems that exist for existing. And it really just changes the way you see everything. Did you have a longing to go back to France after that? Like, oh, I'm getting all this attention there. Like, that's where I should be. (laughs) yeah are you kidding me oh my gosh I mean quite honestly like I didn't have eyebrows until I was like 16 like I was still very much in the depths you know like I didn't quote unquote flourish or whatever you want to call it until like maybe I was 16 years old so up until that point I was like in France they never treat me like this (laughs) but it mellowed out in the end eventually that's great so I want to go to COVID because it seems like your life created a huge whirlwind and and it created a huge whirlwind in your life. And I'm I'm sure many other people listening. And so you said you were let go of three part-time jobs and one of them was your dream job. What was that experience like? Oh my gosh. I mean, the whole thing was so tumultuous. I mean, to give a like backstory, I moved back from Asia in August 2019, I started thinking to myself, okay, like, I guess I should get a corporate career. I don't want to be 26 and be unhirable. So I guess I should work hard. And I also needed the money, you know, I just blown all of it traveling. So I was like, I'm going to go make money and I'm going to figure this out. At the time, I was really fascinated by music. 
I love concerts and I figured if I have to dedicate my life to a career, music feels like a noble pursuit. So why not go in that industry? The problem with that industry is that it's extremely coveted and difficult to get in. So with that being said, one of the most horrendous job experience, like job, what's the word called? Pursue, like when you're looking for a job. Yeah, that experience was just absolutely awful. So for months and months, I grinded. I got a job at a bar in New York City, which also for the record is extremely difficult to get a job because they only search for New York experience. They only want like the best of the best because you know, it's another coveted place. So I was, I found a bartending job from this place off of Craigslist and I hated it. I hated it. I hated it so much, but I just needed the money. And then I tried to get a job at Rumble, the boxing studio. And they too were like, no, we don't, we're full. Like a minimum wage job. They were like, we are fully full. We cannot have you. And I was like, this is incredible. Like, I just want, a girl just wants a job. Why is this so hard? So from August to like November, I was just grinding, trying to be like, I'm going to get a job at this boxing studio. I'm going to get a better bartending job. I'm going to get in the music industry. So the reason why I bring all this up is that when I was let go from all three, it just felt like such a hit in the gut because I worked so hard to get there. I mean, the music, like the music job, it was an internship at EMG and a music company. And it was a process. It was hard. I networked my ass off to find it. And by the time that I had that gig, the internship, I finally like meandered my way to Rumble Boxing Studio. I was like, oh, I'm back again. I heard you guys have availability. And they were like, okay, yeah, we'll hire you. And then I found through another networking job, another bartending job, and I finally was set up. And then I lost everything. So, <laughs> um, yeah, it, it sucked at the moment. But I oddly was able to stay calm and just not take it personally, weirdly enough. How? So, you know, I think, you know, you just look at the world that seems to be burning around you and you're like, okay, I think it's best if I just stay home anyways. So, I don't know. I was able to, like, and I was with my family and I was able to, like, get my mind off of things. So I was able to remain pretty level-headed, thankfully. What would you recommend to someone who wants to get their mind level-headed and they just got let go of three jobs that they really wanted? Like, what would you tell that person? I mean, two things I would say is that it really helps to be surrounded by people who get your mind off of things. So I was lucky enough to be surrounded by my family, which really allowed me to sort of let go from all that ordeal. And then if there's another thing I've learned about this whole process is that like, it's all material, everything that happens to you, good or bad, there's a reason, there's a story behind it. Even if it's like one of the worst things in the world, you can use it to your advantage. You can create with it. Something can come out of it. I strongly believe that, you know, the worst things are just like, you have to welcome those challenges because life is always going to push you around. And it's a question of either if you welcome it and you grow alongside it, or you just get defeated by it. I mean, it really just is like, it's a test. And you just have to be able to get back up on your feet and just keep trying. Like if it's something were to happen, if I were to lose all my freelancing clients, I would just be like, okay, like show me how this gets better. Show me what's the message behind this. And I just strongly believe that. So that's what I would tell that person. That's awesome. And so let's fast forward a bit. What happens in the months to come? How does the life turn around in a sense? Yeah. I mean, for a long time, I just floated. Um, 
you know, I went to Maine with my boyfriend and a few other friends and we just chilled, collected unemployment. Like I was like, you know what, after working three part jobs, you know, I was clocking in crazy hours. I would wake up at 4am to open the boxing studio. And then I would like close the bar at like four in the morning. So at that point I was just ready to just sit down. So for a while I was cool with it. I think that's also why I was able to like mellow out from letting go of those three jobs. But after that, so for a while I chilled, but while I was in Maine, I started doing little things to, you know, I told myself, okay, you know, the music industry might be in shambles, but people are still listening to music. There's still opportunity out there. So I joined more networking opportunities. I took more online courses, but I still felt like something was deeply missing. And I didn't know what it was. I came back from Maine and like around this time, actually, this time last year, I fell into a horrible depression um, for two, three days. It was bad. I just didn't know what to do with my time. And I think that's something that a lot of 20-somethings can relate to is the aimlessness of not being needed anywhere. I mean, it's a curse. If you can either work a job that needs you all the time and you feel burdened by it, or you can be unemployed and feel you know, purposeless. So it really is such a difficult place to be in. The only thing I knew is that I wanted this like deep sense of ownership over something. I just didn't know what it could be like. And I think on like the last day of my depression, I just got up and I sat down at this desk and I was like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make a to-do list. That's what you do when you're in a depressive funk. You just need things to take off. Like you need to you know, kickstart your productivity. So I wrote down, you know, like get up to lesson three of Premiere Pro. So I was trying to learn how to do design at the time. Um, like go work out, like go book a dentist appointment. And then the last one I wrote down, write one article. I had zero idea how I was going to do it. Like I didn't know what medium was. I wasn't on Twitter. I'd never written an article online and published it. But I've always really liked writing ever since I was a kid. I've like stacked and stacks of journals and I was like, okay, I'm going to try this. So I discovered Medium and I told myself that I had to write this article or else this post-it, this post-it note was like a contract. It had to be done. I couldn't break it. So I wrote and published my very first article called the breakaway movement, not all of us can afford to be this delusional, which is a piece about a multi-level pyramid scheme where they recruit young, like predominantly white women to sell Japanese water filters at $5,000 a pop. It's a crazy story. And I wrote about it and published it. No one knew, no one really cared, but that was all I needed. And I just very slowly started building a momentum from there. Well, your mom put that article in her group chat, right? Yeah, she did. Yeah, she, she was supportive. She was like, she sent it, she forwarded it to her French uh, girlfriends, French girlies WhatsApp chat. And it's like, Lisa's is reading articles now. You don't have to read it, but it's good. And I was like, oh, mom. But I am, I'm so grateful she supported. But at the time you're like, oh, this is so embarrassing, you know? Yeah, why do you think, we have that level of embarrassment when our parents share something, when we're doing something new in the first time in public. 
I mean, I think there's like a lot of guilt we carry with why am I deserving of this? And you don't feel like you deserve to have eyeballs or someone's attention on something new that you created, especially people like your parents' friends that you would never, ever stop in the grocery and be like, hey, can you read my article? Like, in your life. So I don't know. I think we just carry a lot of shame around like, who am I to get your attention, especially when it's your first go at something new. It's, it makes you feel really sheepish. So, but I'm glad it happened. You know, you have to get comfortable with that feeling. Yeah, absolutely. And as you've progressed, what's happened? You you touched on the first article, but how did you continue on your path as a writer past that? Yeah. So, I mean, so I published that first article and I just sent it out into the interwebs and I said, do your thing on to the next one. So I told myself my loose goal was one article a week. And back then my writing process was painful. Like it would take so long to write something. I would sit down and aim to get the perfect article without outlining, without researching. Like I was just making it so hard for myself. I mean, these articles would get me like eight cents on Medium and take like, I don't even want to know, like six to 12 hours. And I just started off there and I just kept going and going. And as I was diving deeper into this Medium world, Medium really is like the ecosystem for the freelancers, for the bloggers. And I would just stumble on like so many articles of people who were like freelancing as a career, like making money off of writing as a career. And I just couldn't fathom that someone would pay money for an article. I was like, no one would even pay me a hundred dollars for something like this. This is actually crazy. And in it was either July or August. I got my first $1 from the internet. Very iconic moment for many, many solopreneurs or freelancers. And I remember getting that email and being like so flabbergasted that I had gotten a dollar off of what I was writing. It wasn't even about the amount. It It just signified so much more than that. And I started really immersing myself and starting to get serious about it. I would listen to freelancing podcasts all the time, even though I just didn't know what they were even talking about half of the time. And I also thought that freelancing, like like writing freelancing is journalism. So I was like, oh, I have to pitch like CNN and Refinery29. Like I just didn't even know that there was a world like content writing and copywriting. And eventually, you know, I kept going further down in the rabbit hole and I stumbled on uh, this medium blog from Ava Gutierrez, who happened to be a freelance writing coach. I was so impressed by the quality of her work that I reached out to her on Twitter. I finally gotten on Twitter at this time. So I contacted a reporter for like networking and she was like, you have to be on Twitter. And I was like, oh, fine. I I don't want to do it. So I did it. So I was on Twitter. I found her on Twitter and I sent her a message being like, hey, I love your stuff on Medium. It's really good. I wasn't expecting anything out of it. I generally wanted her to know. And she asked she was like thanks so much like she asked me a bunch of questions about what I was doing I was like why are you why do you care why are you giving me this time of day this is so weird but you know I entertained it and she was like oh and by the way I'm launching this thing called the client acquisition system and I immediately was like that is I'm wary because I don't want to spend money on the internet with someone I've never met before like what are you talking about but at the time I was like she seems legit and like 
her program was dedicated to helping freelancers get paying writing clients. And I was like, this sounds too good to be true. So, you know, she's like, let's get on the phone. Let's just talk. So I got on the phone. I was so, I had like a million questions for her because I was so hesitant, but she was such a delight, so trustworthy, so transparent. And after a few calls, um, I said yes to working with her and I paid her and it was the single best investment like of my career so far. Um, she taught me so much. And I think working with her is really just what like started everything. Like I don't think I would be where I am today without her help. I genuinely mean that. What do you think the first time you saw her post and and you first first time you saw her writing, what caught your eye about her post? I I saw myself in her. And I think what I mean by that is she had also traveled the world um independently as like you know solo female backpacker and I was like yes I love it when I see that like and she you know she had done that she was now living in LA starting her own freelance writing business she just had so many resources and templates about working with clients she just seemed so knowledgeable and I was like she's only a few years older than me like how is she doing all of these things so I think that's why I reached out is because I was like I feel like you're me just four years later from now it's hard to explain, but I feel like someone you can relate in a weird way. Yeah. And then with working with her, what did you learn? What did, what were the things that really gripped you? And you're like, wow, this was the best investment of my career. I mean, first and foremost, you know, she first teaches you about mindset and that it is easy to acquire a client. In my mind, I was like, no, it's not. It's going to be extremely difficult because I have zero experience, zero references, zero professional, anything. It's not going to happen for me. And she just basically was like, that's not true. You can land a client without any of this experience. And I was like, I don't have anything to lose. So I believe you, whatever. <laughs> After the mindset week, we went into the client acquisition system where she sort of gives you a template to cold pitch clients. Um, you find out which industry you want to be in. She helps you brand yourself as a writer. And then you come up with a list of like eight ideal clients you want to work with. And then you fill out her template and you send it out and she helps you with like the responses, uh, the follow-ups, all that jazz. So I started reaching out to these companies that I was finding on Twitter and I was like, they're never going to want to work with me, but like whatever, I tried. And I was shocked because my response rate was over 60%. Like I was getting so many responses and getting on phone calls with people who were asking me about my services. And what really flabbergasted me was, you know, when I was talking to Ava and I asked, how much should I, what do I charge for this type of thing? Like, I don't know. And she was like, well, you can start off at 250. And I was like, what? You know, like, in my mind, just like. Say two, that again. 250 an article, sorry. 250 an article. And in my mind, I was like, what are you talking about? I didn't even think it was possible to make a hundred. And I had again, like zero. I didn't have a website. I didn't have a newsletter. I had like maybe 42 followers on Twitter. I was like, who's going to pay me that much money to write those things. But I went on a few calls. I told my prices, no one battered an eye. And I mean, it just by the end of her program, I just felt so confident and equipped to be able to do that thing. And I mean, the beautiful thing about it is that once you start sending out those cold emails, you really do create a flywheel effect for yourself. And I haven't cold pitched for a new client since her 
program since October. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy. That's why I say it's like the best investment I've ever made because I just haven't, it just started this insane flywheel of references. So take us to the first client you ever closed. How did that feel? What was that experience like? What were the nerves like? Take us to that moment. So it's actually a funny story. My first client actually wasn't with Ava, even though she did help me close two other clients. My first client was that article, the very first one that I published, the Breakaway Movement article about mm. water filters, the one that I had no idea what I was doing. I clicked publish and I left it forever. I was like, I'm not going to think about this again. I checked my stats, my analytics, one random day on Medium. And that article is ranking number one on Google search for breakaway movement. I was like, oh my goodness, I had zero idea. And I got a DM on Twitter one day from this guy, Jordy, who was like, I loved your article about breakaway movement. It's so funny. Um, we actually are looking for a voice like yours. Like, do you want to get on the phone? And I was like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? Me? Like, I don't know. So you know, luckily I was working with Ava at the time. So while she didn't connect me with that client, she was really helpful in like guiding me how to go about this. And, you know, this client and I, Jordy and I is a good friend of mine now, but so we like chatted on the phone and he's like, yeah, like how much would something like this be? And it was actually over like telegram, but I was text that I was messaging him. Um, and I just remember being like 250, but then writing like all the reasons why it would be 250, which is like a big no-no now, now that I'm like a little bit more seasoned as a freelancer. But back then I was like, well, it would be 250. And here's why. It would take me X hours to do this. And you would get X words. And this is what I would do on the side, like way too detailed. He just goes, okay, sounds good. Totally fine. But I remember I actually was texting him while I was babysitting at the time, because while I was working with Ava, Evidently, I hadn't, you know, set up my business yet. So I was, you know, changing diapers and feeding strawberry yogurt to like two-year-olds. So while I was doing that, I was like on the phone texting this guy, closing my first ever freelance writing client. It felt so surreal. Life is weird, man. It comes at you fast. Was there a level of feeling like an imposter because all this happened so quickly and you never thought of yourself as a writer or you did, but this is the first time you published and then you're working with someone and now they're paying you $250 an article. Was there a level of like, do I deserve this? Am I really a writer? Should I really be charging? What did that ever cross your mind at all? Oh my gosh. Every day. It still does. I I mean, yeah, absolutely. There is a level of imposter syndrome. I mean, it's not even so much about the money with the clients as it was more telling your circle And even on social media, announcing that this is what you do now. This is who you are. When I first posted in the fall in September on my Instagram saying, hey, by the way, I am a writer now. And I write about this. I felt so silly inside. It really didn't feel like I had the right to say that. And the response I got was overwhelmingly positive. And it just really shook me awake and I realized okay you know what like there's only you that's in your way that tells you what you can and cannot call yourself and from now I mean now it sounds totally normal to say it but I remember when I was also saying in social situations I was like with this new person at like a random restaurant or something and she was like oh so what do you do and I was like oh like I'm a writer and she goes no but like what do you really do you know like for money 
And I was like, at that point, I just hadn't closed point yet. So I was just like, I, I babysit sometimes. And she goes, mm, yeah, that's what it is. And I was like, wow, okay. But so basically the response is like mostly positive, but you will find people who are skeptical, but that's okay. That's life. How do you deal with that situation when you're, you're talking to the skeptical woman and, and she's putting you down in a subtle way? Where, where does your mind go to bring yourself back up? You know, it's funny you should bring that up. When I first got that reaction, I was like, wow, well, that's pretty shitty. But I read Naval's book, The Almanac with Naval Ravinter. And uh, there's a part of it, I, I want to say it correctly, but let me see if I can, where essentially I used to be offended when someone had no idea what I did for a career. But now I take it as a compliment because the more specific you are and niche you are, the more valuable and highly regarded you're going to be for what you're doing. So when someone is like, when I tell someone, oh, well, like I am a copywriter for like creators and consumer tech startups and they go, what? I'm just like, great. Thank <laughs> you. Because to me, it's like the least, you're like less replaceable. Like the least amount of people who know how to do your, your craft, the more valuable you are. So. That's okay. such an interesting point. I've never thought about it like that, even though I've read that from Naval, but it's, the way you phrased it is, it's going to make me think for a while. So next time someone's like, wait, you're a podcaster? Just be like, thank you for that. <laughs> so good. <laughs> so, you know, I wanted to talk to you about burnout because with all this talk about putting out so much content and creating so much and writing so much, you've talked pretty openly about feeling burnt out at some point. What caused that burnout and how did you realize that it actually was burnout? Yeah, I mean, it was it was rough. Essentially what had happened, so at the fall I was working with Ava, the flywheel started, I started getting more clients, I started growing on Twitter, more leads started to come in. And you know, before I knew it, um, around December, January, I was busy. I was making, you know, like a good amount of money off of this thing. And it felt you know, after being unemployed after COVID for so long, I felt like really ready to go, really to tackle anything. And also this was my dream. Like I want to be a freelancer. I want to write for a living. And you just take on more than what you can chew. And essentially what had happened was I was working way too much. And it was completely consuming me. I would think about it all hours of the day. And essentially what had happened was that there was a week where I was just, I would wake up start working the second after you know, I'd brush my teeth all day. And I remember there was a day where I went to go shower. No, actually I like drew a bath and I didn't even let the water like collect. I just sat there in this tub, just letting the stream of water just hit my shoulder. And I just sat there with like my eyes, like, burning just thinking into the distance okay what do I have to do tonight what can I get done if I do this and I can like maybe make room for that like I just I was quite literally bur like burning up <laughs> and what had happened was that I got connected with a new client which probably wasn't healthy for me but I took it on anyways and that client happened to be um Alejandro Navia who is an executive coach I didn't know that. I was just ready to help him with this project, ready to take on anything. And, you know, we completed the project. It was great. 
And then I posted on Twitter, I think that I was like starting to burn out. And he messaged me being like, Hey, like I saw your post. Are you, you okay? Like, do you want to get on the phone? Do you want to chat about it? And I was just like, sure. Okay. Why not? Like, I wasn't thinking anything of it. I was just thinking he was going to be like, are you okay? To which I would say, yeah. And then we would just forget about it. I wasn't okay, but that's how things go. And we get on this call and I start to cover everything that's going on. And I'm just like, yeah, I'm fine. Yeah, it's a lot, but I'm fine. You know, it's just restful, but I'm fine. And he just started asking me these like real deep questions of like, he just plotted deeper and deeper and he just knocked me out of the water. And I realized that I was just not even here mentally. Like I was just living in this compartmentalized part of my brain. I just felt like I was walking in a fog in a daze and I almost I cried on that call which felt so awkward for me because I was like this is a client what am I doing like crying on this this is so silly but he really helped me like see that I was just not being myself and you know he like made me realize that like I wasn't present with my friends like I was always on my phone I can I can shut up about work and in a classic twist of fate that same week I lost all of my clients in one go. Wow. Yeah. Um, one of them, a contract ended and I didn't want to renew it. Another one uh, lost funding. It was nothing personal. And another one had to switch directions and stop focusing on content and focus on another vertical of his company. So just like that, I lost everything. And also in that week, um, Alejandro was like, I want to offer you like... Um, I want to offer you my coaching services if you would like to work together. And I said, yes. And within that week, I lost all my clients and I got a life coach. (laughs) But yeah, I think it was just the universe's way of saying like, stop working. If you don't, I'll make you. And that's what happened. What, What specifically about that call with Alejandro made you start crying? I mean, like... When you're, you're just not living. I mean, when you're focused on work that way, he was just really plotting. He was like, if you keep going like this, what's going to happen to you? And that question really scared me because I realized I was just going to crash into the ground and just become very resentful, very resentful human being. I also, I already was dealing with a lot of contempt and that stress would translate into passive aggressive remarks with people who were close to me. And he basically was like, if you keep going, what's going to happen to your relationship? What's going to happen to you? What's going to happen with your work? Do you think you can grow if you keep going like this? And it was just hard because I think for a lot of overachievers or people who work very art in school. And this is something that I worked and uncovered later on, but hopefully someone listening can relate. But when you're in school and you're sort of like the under, not the underdog, but you're like kind of ignored and you're introverted. Um, Then you go to high school and things don't get much better. I was very jealous of my best friends. They, you know, developed faster than me. They got more attention than me. And I just felt like a lot of things were out of my control. But the only thing that I could control was academic, was like academics, schoolwork. Like I couldn't get, you know, 
I can get attention, but I could outperform them at school. So that's what I focused to bring control into my life. And I just carry that on for a very long time. So with work, my burnout was a result of trying to control everything around me by just going on overdrive. And in that call with Alejandro, I realized that it's just not, it's an illusion. You don't have control at all. And that really shook me to my core. So So much of what we do, it seems like stems from what our early child lacked at some point. And if Mm -hmm. we can think about that early child and that growing and developing child that we were, Mm -hmm. it could better help inform us in what direction to go and give us a better picture of why we're doing some of the things we're doing mm-hmm. back to you, back to you is like, what has the past, when you started working with Alejandro, what was the, the things that changed in your life afterward? One of the first things I realized was we tend to feel as though we have to prove ourselves all the time. Like, I have to prove that I'm lovable. I have to prove that I'm a good person. I have to prove that I'm worth money and clients and attention. Um, money doesn't come easily. It has. To, I have to suffer for it first. And unlearning all of that was really shocking. I mean, just to have someone tell you, like, to take you by the hand and say, no, you don't. Things don't have to be that hard. You don't have to hang on to this was earth shattering for me at the time. He also recommended I read the book, The Untethered Soul, which was one of the most like, life-changing books I've ever read. And it allowed me to see things with a level of objectivity that we oftentimes deprive ourselves from having. So we're very quick to guide ourselves with our emotions rather than using our emotions to think or to go backwards. Everything that I was thinking was very much like do or die. This is reality. And this is like, if I feel this way, this is how things are. But when you're able to take a step back and be more objective and think, I am feeling this way. Why? Let's uncover that and let's let things go. And it sounds like a minor thing, but for my life, it was huge. And for maybe someone else listening, they'll deal with this too. But contempt was so heavy and was such like a destroying factor in my life. I mean, it was the type of thing where if someone did something that upset me, I would hang on to it for as long as I could. And I wouldn't confront the problem because you want them to suffer alongside you before you fess up. It's like holding on to like a hot coil, coil, coal. And all it does is just burn you as you're holding it. But in the moment, you feel like you have to hurt before you can get better. And so detaching yourself from the content, letting go, just letting it pass through you, just observing it as an emotion, but not interacting with it, not giving it power, not speaking it into existence has changed a lot. And I feel just a lot lighter, so much lighter as a human being. So, and also I don't take work as seriously. And I don't mean that I don't take, I don't like perform well with work, but like I used to beat myself up if I didn't end my days absolutely exhausted, like on the burn of, on the brink of burnout. It was like, you did a bad job today. Like sucks for you. But I reframed that as like, 
that's not true. You don't have to beat yourself up for, for not thinking that you're enough. It's ridiculous. And unlearning that has just been really, really helpful. So work isn't everything. With the contempt aspect of it and feeling contempt and wanting others to carry that contempt with you, where do you think that comes from? Like, again, going back to being a kid, but like as a kid, so in France, we call this thing um, a boudin, which means like she's like holding on to anger. So like my sister was the type of kid who if she was angry, you would know because she would scream at your face. She would kick. She would cause a public nightmare. I, on the other hand, not a word would leave my mouth. Dead quiet. And I could carry it on for days and, and days. <laughs> Which my parents were like, that's fine. Like, be quiet. Those, I don't care. But that just carried on. Like, instead of confronting things head on and communicating, which honestly, 99% of our problems, I generally believe is boiled down to communication. It had to be hidden with contempt and revenge. And I don't know where that came from exactly. But I think it's just a, it's also a fear of confrontation, a fear of being a people pleaser and contempt almost is a punishment to yourself the most because you think to yourself, I'm not strong enough or comfortable enough to handle this confrontation. So I'm just going to hurt now. Mm. And it's just not a good way to go about things, but it feels so good in the moment, but it's so destructive, man. It's crazy. You said 99% of our problems have to do with communication. What does that mean exactly? I mean, really, with any argument I've had in my life or see it with other people, the best way to describe it is that it's never you versus them. It's always you. It's always you guys versus the problem. But within our methods of communication, we're so quick to hit, like, put ourselves against the other. But if we're just able to chat, and have something deep and authentic and not use anger as a tool, because that's really what anger is. It's just a tool and you can effectively reach a conclusion without it. It changes a lot of things. And I mean, it's an important skill to have though. It's really difficult. Most people don't know how to do it. I'm still working on it. (laughs) It's beautiful. So going back to the last six months, we've touched on how you've change with work but what happened after you lost all your clients yeah um so yeah weird weird things happen so i started working with alejandro obviously i also got um a dm from david perel who was like do you want to join you should join my class rite of passage and i was like i would love to join but i just can't afford four thousand dollars for this but he's like, oh yeah, apply to my scholarship. And I just was so flabbergasted at that because I had wanted to join for so long and I didn't think it was possible for me. And it suddenly was like, I was so lucky to get the scholarship. So I committed to, you know, like bettering myself. I committed to write a passage and I had like one time here and there writing assignments. So I just, you know, did that from, I would say like February to March or April. And then I started, I didn't even have to call, like, I just, and this sounds so crazy, but I, when I felt like I was ready to start working again, I just started getting like a wave of clients. And I just, I just think the universe was like, okay, you're ready now. 
here you go. And I've been lucky enough to yeah, have work since. What do you think that is? Because sometimes so often it, it seems to work that way when we're burning ourselves out, the, the work goes away magically when we're ready and coming at a great headspace, the relationship comes or the, the work comes, what is going on there? Well, I guess I'll never know, Danny. I think if there's the first thing that comes to mind when you say that is you have your faith is stronger than the fear. And by allowing yourself to let go and to free fall into that belief, every single time you do that, things turn out okay. And I don't know. I think you just really have to be in the right headspace. When you ask yourself, like, show me how it gets better, like, I'm ready, you also subconsciously start looking for things that reaffirm that way of thought. It doesn't even have to be, like, woo-woo universe. Like, there is, like, an explanation behind it. It's the same thing for, like, if you're a very pessimistic person who's very negative, you pick out things that, you know, upset you because that's it reconfirms the way you think about life. So when you ask yourself, okay, like, I'm ready now. Show me how it gets better you start picking things out that reaffirm that narrative that you're telling yourself. Hmm. What are some of the most important practices these days that you rely on to maintain a lighthearted nature and, and an easygoing and, and just a, a more freeing person that you are? I, I would say redefining your relationship with social media is the first one. I've worked on that a lot these past few months. Um, with Alejandro, we had to commit to one thing I would give up. And for that, that was to stop checking social media in the mornings, which has changed my life in the best way possible. Meditating, even for just like five minutes every morning, has been very peaceful. And journaling. I think journaling is honestly the cheapest form of therapy. I strongly believe that, but it really allows you to take all those jumbled thoughts and abstractions, storylines in your mind, detach, see them on a sheet of paper and just realize that nothing's, your problems aren't as bad as they seem. And once you start planning things out, like writing it out, you can come up with solutions and new ways to look at things. So I'd say journaling, meditating, watching your social media consumption, and never not taking anything personally. And that's a big one that I've learned very recently. We always think that people do things to spite us when in reality, we're more likely just helpless passerbys and their route to happiness. For instance, I wrote about this in my newsletter, but if a client, and this has happened before, it happens to every freelancer, but a client was like, we aren't like, this is, you know, your mind's in the right space, but this isn't what we're looking for. And the first instinct is to be like, oh, fuck. Like they hate me. I did a terrible job. They never want to work with me again. But when you really look at it, they don't give a shit about your feelings to put it nicely. All they care about is having a good piece of content. They don't care about if you feel good or great. They just want it to be a good job. So when you're able to detach again, honestly, life is so much about being objective about so many things, but when you're able to detach and think, okay, it's not personal because their route to happiness is having something that looks good. You can reframe everything and just not take things to heart. And I think that's such a big part of happiness because if you do let people affect you that way, life gets so heavy. So. And on that point of the the company might 
let you go because they might be going in a different direction and might have nothing to do with you. And just because you're getting fired or, or getting let go from that position doesn't mean that the company hates you personally. Oh, no, no. I mean, all we all landed on really good terms. I'm still in contact with all of them, actually. So it all worked out fine. But yeah, I mean, it, it takes work, though, to be able to not take things personally. It's hard. But yeah. I, I mean, again, it all boils down to ego. Like, life doesn't revolve around you. And that's depressing. But it's also very liberating. And I would encourage you or whoever's listening to go with that, that way of thinking. Yeah. And you mentioned about limiting your social media consumption or, or being aware of it. How do you think about creating so much content for the internet while also thinking about limiting your consumption? Yeah, I mean, you, I mean, you can't create good stuff if you're always comparing yourself to what other people are doing. And if there's like the biggest takeaway I've had from this whole like, no social media in the mornings ordeal is that because my day is so starkly divided between no social media after social media, you can pinpoint the exact moment your mood starts to sour. So ego, lack, comparison. I can feel that in my soul, the second it materializes and 10 out of 10 times, it's because I'm on my phone looking at something. And that was like frightening for me to realize. I was like, oh my God, I only feel shitty because of what I'm seeing online. And knowing that in mind, if you start off your day, like as a creator and you just scroll, compare, like those feelings, lack, ego, comparison, they're natural. It's, it's you're not like an abnormal person for having those thoughts. I mean, it's human nature, but you're bound to have them. And I just think as a creator, you'll have such a better time if you start off your day in your own headspace before letting other people's ideas infiltrate your brain. So just be very mindful about that. Create first content. Consuming content comes, comes later. Yeah. And so how do you think about, you know, I, I think you've started creating content on the internet for a year. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm a little under a year. Yeah, this, this September will be a year. Okay, so I think something that a lot of people struggle with or get nervous about is the idea that some of the things they're talking about, they're going to change their mind on. And at some point in the future, they're not going to believe what they currently said. Mm -hmm. And I know from personal experience of putting stuff out there for three years, I'm looking at stuff I've put out in 2018. I'm like, I don't, I'm not that person anymore. I don't agree with the things I said. And it, it makes me feel like, oh, if I think that about myself three years ago, what will I feel about the things I'm saying today? And I'm curious, have you thought about that changing mm -hmm. of your own mind? And has that held you back at all from creating? I mean, honestly, not really. <laughs> the, like the past part, yes. I've seen things that I've put out in the past and been like, ooh, I do not believe that anymore. I haven't projected that far in the in the future yet. I'm, although I'm sure it's an anxiety for many people. I think if there's one quote that I'm reminded of when you bring that up, Danny, it's um, it's easier to argue with an intelligent person versus an idiot. And what I mean by that is, if you're arguing with someone who's like stubborn and doesn't change their mind about things, you're never going to be able to have like a two-sided conversation with them. But if you're intelligent, like the biggest sign of intelligence 
one of them is when someone just goes, oh, I don't know. Or like, oh, I've changed my mind because they assess, you know, their environment, the factors. They take that into consideration and then from there make a new informed, educated decision. That's why, though, it's so frightening to say, oh, I've changed my mind or, oh, I don't know, because our society isn't really acclimated to thinking that way. But I mean, if there's anyone who's looking for advice, I would just say, you know, in the future, that's a sign of intelligence. If you can go, no, I've changed my mind and here's why. It's nothing to be afraid of. If you have like a reasonable explanation for it, by all means. But if anyone says otherwise, then I wouldn't, I wouldn't even bother. I'd be like, all right, that's, that's on you then. <laughs> you know, you bring up the point of people saying, I don't know, or changing their mind isn't really accepted in our culture. How do you think that we can make that more accepted? I just think we have to, I mean, put it on the platforms we're most on. Like you have to see it like live time on either like videos or threads or like where people are like bring something up. Like for instance, like, oh, you said this in like 2018 and someone just goes, yeah, I I changed my mind. You just have to see people go first. And that's what's scary because when you do do that, you are stepping outside of the crowd. You're doing something different and it's frightening. But when you start doing that, another person follows and another person follows. And then eventually it'll be weird if you've never changed your mind ever in your life before. So one step at a time. Yeah. It's weird because we're the first generation of people who have all their history online on this digital place. And when you think about it on the blockchain, it's like, now it's never going to be deleted ever. And it's like, (laughs) our, our great grandparents, they were writing letters and tearing them apart. And you know, they did something one day, no one else saw it for years or never saw it. And so we have such great power as a generation that can understand technology, but there's also a great responsibility that comes with it because our great grandchildren will be watching us potentially do what we do. And that is so weird to think about. I haven't even gone that deep, but that is really weird to think about. (laughs) I don't even know. Gosh, you have to be so careful what you put out there. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I I don't mean to scare anyone, but I do think that we, we put such emphasis now on what people say and what people have said 10 years ago and how could they have said something 10 years ago. But I mean, 10 years ago was the first time anyone was putting anything out online for the first time. So yeah, I don't know if we completely understand what we've gotten ourselves into. I don't know if I completely understand it. Anyone has, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> it's a wild time. Elise, is there any anything else you'd like to mention before we go to a close? Any other topics you'd like to explore or anything like that? I think if there's one last thing to bring up, it would just be for anyone who's like in the job search or just constantly getting rejected from things who is happens to be like either a 20 something or a bit older. I mean, this really applies to everyone, but if there's like one thing I can tell you is that like, I am not different than anyone who's there. The only difference is that I just started earlier than you. Like that's it. And I went from being rejected to pretty much almost every single job that I was applying to. So people coming into my inbox asking if they could work with me. And I genuinely believe that people don't understand like 
the power that comes with creating and putting yourself out there and doing good work and networking and just like so few people have an authentic voice and have opinions and have ideas and write and produce content that when you do do it, everything changes. It really is like a cheat code in life. And I don't think enough people know about it. So I would strongly encourage whoever's listening to not get discouraged by all those rejections and to screw anyone that says you have to wait to become XYZ person. You can do it right now with the internet. And I mean, I'm a testament of it. So many people around us are. And I would just say, just don't get discouraged. Just create. I mean, it really is a solution to so many things. What do you think the biggest thing that got you from sending out letters to people to getting letters sent to you? What do you think the biggest thing happened in between that period? I don't know. I think it was just, just like, just being super honest and again, like demonstrating that I'm really no different than anyone else. It really is sort of an interesting paradox because so few people do genuinely contribute to the conversation online. When you do have something out there, you immediately build authority and legitimacy. So when you start putting yourself out there like that, people, I get emails or DMs where people are like, how did you do it? Like, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I mean, like, it's really, you just have to put yourself out there and you just have to create. And if there's something that I was told recently, it's, it's okay to suck, but it's not okay to skip, which means you just have to be consistent with it. Your first few articles, podcasts, whatever it is you're working on are going to suck. Yeah, but that's okay. At least you're trying something so few people do and you should be proud of yourself just for that. What would be the first thing you would advise someone to do who wants to start creating? You've got to stop caring what people think, man. You've got to not give a shit. I mean, you generally like, I just... I am so passionate about this, but like, if you could see like where you are right now in life, you don't even know how your life could change a year from now. If you started putting yourself out there, if you get past that fear of what people will think, what will people think about me? What if I produce isn't good? You just push through that. You unleash this vortex of opportunities. Like it is incredible. I mean, a year from now, I was quite literally in like one of the worst depression funks of my life. I had no idea what I wanted to do in life. I felt so sad and just like, I had no authority, no ownership, nothing. And through pushing past that fear, through creating, through clicking publish, it has, it's just opened like 18 million doors in life. And it's just, mind-blowing and I just encourage everyone to like push open that first door because it really opens possibilities you didn't even know existed it's insane I absolutely love it Elise where can people find more from you yes they can find me on my twitter which is going to be spelled like Alice so Alice L LeMay L-E-M-E-E and they can also email me at again Alice at Thank you so much, Elise. I appreciate you tremendously. Thank you for coming on, spreading that wisdom. It means the world to me. Thank you. Sure. Thank you so much, Danny. It's been awesome. I'll catch you around in the Twitter universe. 
hope you guys enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. I loved how deep Elise was willing to get with her story and break down specific parts of it. So hope that was valuable for you. If you have any thoughts about this episode, let me know on Twitter at Hey Danny Miranda. And lastly, just wanted to thank you for listening until this moment. It means the world to me. And I appreciate you from the bottom of my heart. Have a great one. I'll see you guys in the next one. Peace.